the first project on environmental violence that I became involved in in forensic architecture was the project in Guatemala. And that was a project that went to court and it was presented. And in Guatemala, we were looking at the entanglement between environmental destruction and warfare and genocide. And so these two things are very separate from one another, you would think, but they're actually really inseparable. And that was our the kind of work that we were doing to show this entanglement, to show how the way, the kind of the moving of people, the, the genocide, the moving of people from their villages, the destruction of their villages, the moving of them into model villages, the maneuvering of military across the territory, all of this could be registered by doing these um, specific analysis that we did, the type of analysis that we developed. It's called NDVI, Normalized Vegetation Index. And so what's this specific technique does is that it analyzes a satellite image and identifies what is live vegetation and what is not and separates these two. So we had an image, we acquired an image from before the kind of time of genocide and one from after. And you could see two different processes. You could see huge areas that were deforested and then there were particular areas that were reforested as in the environment had kind of like you know covered the forest has covered the remains of villages that people had so it's 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 an active participation of environment you know it's it's not nature is no longer a backdrop against which um, us humans do things and and do our warfare and so on environment is very much entangled with it it is a force it is not something that you just do things to but it, it comes back at you and it goes out of hand you know Samane Mwafi is an architect and the senior researcher at Forensic Architecture at Goldsmiths, University of London. She oversees the Centre for Contemporary Nature, a division within Forensic Architecture, which explores the relationship between human rights violations, environmental violence and anthropogenic climate change. The Centre's activist research into environmental damage challenges the historical perception of nature as a static, eternal backdrop against which human activity unfolds and calls for a new understanding of nature, contemporary nature, which is now entangled with human agency in a feedback loop with consequences far beyond our control. In this podcast, Saman Moafi turns our gaze to notions of ecocide, negative comments, and environmental violence in pursuit of accountability and change. In doing so, she takes us through the Negev desert, extraterritorial toxic clouds, orangutan nests in Indonesia, forest fires, and weaponized wind gusts in the Gaza Strip.
we thought of working on a project that deals with the forest fires in 2015. So it was the beginning of 2016 when we thought of that. The forest fires in Indonesia. And they happen every year, basically. But this year, they were much extremer than they have ever been. It was because of the way climate was operating at the time. And the reason that they happen is because of these industrial agricultural um, fields that uh, plant palm oil. And the way that they clear the land is that they will burn the land so that it becomes clear and then they can do plantation on it. And they have to do it um, kind of like uh, a few times until um, they get it right, basically. But then what happens is that when they start burning, the fires will kind of go out of hand sometimes. They, They exceed the limits of the land that is supposed to be cultivated. And, you know, if that happens, there's nothing you can do. There is, it's actually quite good because you have a little bit of extra land that now you can cultivate. Also, we know that some of these areas are where um, you have peatlands. And peat is, is very precious. It has history. It's, 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 it's storing carbon dioxide in a way, right? In order to be able to plant it, you have to drain the peat. And so you have to put these canals that will take the water, will suck the water out of the peat, and therefore it becomes dry, and therefore you can start planting on it. But that means that if it starts burning, the fires are so deep, um, and it's impossible to control them. It's really, really hard to control them. And so um, there is so there is multiple sides to this story that we know of, that there is the kind of like economic side of these big agricultural practices. You have the, uh, the way environment kind of like uh, has a role in this. You have the legislations, the way government is controlling the clearing of land or not. So there was these multiple things that we were dealing with. And then we thought that what if the... But if the way that we look at this is not like a human-centered kind of um, critique, it's something broader. It's about the destruction of environment at this context. It's about, you know, the destruction of ecosystems, the destruction of uh, violence against forests. And we know forests are habitats of different kinds of animals and birds and plants and so on. And so among them, we thought, okay, we'll choose the orangutan as an example, and we see how we can deal with this. You know, is he is he human? Is he not human? Is he nature? What kind of rights does he have? How can we open up a space in the context of a court to claim for his rights? And then came the question of what forum? What, what kind of um, context can we claim it in? And then um, we looked at how big the cloud of carbon monoxide that was produced by these forest fires was. It was a cloud so big that it was covering not only Indonesia, but Singapore, Papua. And then we thought that, okay, because of this extraterritorial size of the cloud, that it exceeds the boundaries of a national um, border, then there's a possibility that we can bring it to an international court or we could kind of have a court in, in the kind of neighboring countries against the fire. And so that that was kind of like a start of a conversation that we were, you know, talking um, 
very closely with FIBGAR um, Foundation um, International, Balthazar Garçon, and um, trying to develop this, right? And, and there was a different kind of people that we brought into this uh, research that we had. We had anthropologists and scientists in Max Planck Institute who were experimenting with um, whether an orangutan is a sentient being. Does he have emotions? Does he learn? Does he is, he is he a sentient being or not? And so we had those kind of experiments. Then we had uh, cases. We started collecting cases, legal cases, that an orangutan is given on human rights. And we had this case in Argentina where a judge grants an orangutan, Sandra, who was kept in a zoo, non-human rights. Um, and so at that point, an orangutan became not an object of law, but a subject in a way. And so this was kind of like a precedent that we looked into in legal terms. We had the scientific things happening at the same time. We had the architectural things. So we started looking at the nests that the orangutans built. And I myself, have, uh, I'm an ar architect, I have an architectural training. And so it was interesting to look at the architecture of their habitat in a way. How, how, well, how do they make it? Is it social? Is it not? Is there a mother orangutan and a, a baby that make it together? How long do they stay there? So there's all of these kind of ways of settling that we digged into. What if the question is not about can an orangutan be a human, but what if we have a right that we as humans share with the orangutans, that we're a part of, you know, what if it's a way, it's a different way of thinking about it. If we have this, what is the language of this right, the new right that we're describing? What is the language of the evidences that we can produce to, in order to claim for this right? What are the techniques? What are the visuals? What are the... So these are the questions that we're dealing with at the moment. On our team, we have anthropologists, we have architects, we have uh, geographers, we have um, lawyers, we have artists, it's a very complex kind of um, thing, but um, we have orangutans on our team. At the moment, and to kind of develop the research, we worked with um, NGOs in Indonesia. We worked with WALI, which is kind of like one of the biggest um, NGO organizations in Indonesia. We've worked with Center for Orangutan Protection very closely because they were telling us the cases that they're working with, the cases of violence that they've gathered, and we were investigating them. We were mapping them in, in uh, through satellite images, through kind of NDVI analysis, different types of analysis that we could do. And this collaboration is very precious for us because what we could do from the very beginning, we were saying that let's do this so that we can have these animations and these kind of graphic uh, representations of these cases for you. And you can use that to communicate with the general public, to engage the, the public into this discourse. And then these documents could help them, the kind of drawings and maps that we're producing could help them uh, with their own cases in courts in Indonesia. Now, 
the question of can we use Indonesia as as an example of a case of ecocide internationally, um, bring it to an international court. This is very complex, and this is something that we're working with. We don't know um, yet at this stage if um, if it can work or not. But this is, you know, this is what we want to. It's one of the challenges of the work to create the forum. And it doesn't have to always be a court, um, the forum that we approach. Many times it's better to start with something different, to, to start with an exhibition um, that engages with the general public. It was great for us to come to MACBA. Um, sometimes it's through lectures and talks that um, we give. Sometimes it's, a, it's in a teaching context, so a class uh, that we're teaching. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, you know, a tribunal, uh, um, enacting a court environment, you know, there are different things. And, and we just kind of, we, we try to make the forum. It's, it's part of the challenge. Actually, one of the first projects that I did with Forensic Architecture, and it was about building a round table, something very simple. And the idea that the most important lesson maybe that we have learned from the Arab Spring um, was actually something spatial. It was about the space of the roundabout. And the roundabout is something colonial. We understand that it was a colonial thing that the Europeans, the French, would have come to the Middle East, would have cut the old neighborhoods and medinas of cities and would put roundabouts in order to be able to survey the area and control it. But today, it is the space of the roundabout that a people goes to and like stands in at, in order to claim its right. But the decisions are usually made the day after, when people are sitting around the round table and discussing things, not in the roundabout. And so that was the project, that what if there's a round table in one of these roundabouts? What if it is a space that you can discuss things with your comrades, with your friends and colleagues and, and people who think like you? you know? So yes, um, it's about building the forum. And that's exactly what we want to do with Center for um, Contemporary Nature. Our ne next task, I think, is building the forum for it. nature as contemporary nature. It's different to what we have historically understood nature to be. The idea, the way that we're trying to develop it at the moment is to archive the cases that we have that deal with the environment and try to approach them in a very specific way. Try to approach them from a point of view that maybe the narrative that we have is not about human kind of centered discourse. It's about reading the environment as something different, as something that is censored. The age of trees, the thickness of them, where they are in, a, in an environment. And not just, I'm not just talking about forest, it's also the desert. And actually one of the things that we've done is to archive the cases that we have and organize them uh, 
geographically and understand okay so what is happening and we realize that many of them are along these threshold environmental thresholds that go across the globe the threshold between the forest and the desert where is the line that the desert ends and where is the line that the forest starts and it's along these lines that a lot of these conflicts um some of them in our ecocide in a way some of them uh, warfare are happening it's about pushing this line up and down it's not a line that is static it's constantly moving it's it's a complex question the question of oil the question of palm oil even that i was saying because economically for a state um to survive, say in the Middle East, oil is a resource. Without oil, it doesn't have the understanding. I mean, it, the, the the states are so dependent on the extraction of oil that they do not see how economically they can survive without its extraction. Um, and in Indonesia as well, palm oil plantation is very big. It's very economically. It's produced. It's very um, good for the states in a way. Um, now it's about creating a different you have to come up with a different way of approaching this you have to come up with alternative economic models you just have to understand that this is wrong the extraction of oil is wrong um and it's not about and and it's part of the job is about uh, criminalizing these cases and and describing why they are criminal but the other part of the job is to come up with alternatives. Um, and I think coming up with alternatives is, is like, um, is, it, it would be integral to this, to, to convince um, a state to completely change its framework and um, come up with the new, new things. And we have to do it. It's, it's about time. We should have done it 20 years ago. So. One of the things is to engage the public, to educate the, the public. And the claim to truth is important. Um, to mobilize this claim that this is the truth. This is really what is happening. This is, this is, you have to see it. You have to see it in, and, and to show it to a people, to, to engage them, to educate them, to, to make a people understand what is it that the state is doing, what is it that, um, um, that's happening globally, that is happening in my own country, um, in my own village, um, and so on and so forth. And I think um, that will help. You know, when when um, a people know what is right, it's hard to trick them. A lot of projects that um, are uh, that we have in forensic architecture that deal with environmental violence, they're developed by people who are doing their PhDs on um, environment. So it's, it's very much something that you know we want to explore we want to really dig into conceptually not only legally you know conceptually how can we within academia even you know let's begin with that like how can you just reframe the whole um thing and so there are um uh, phd candidates who are doing field work themselves they're they're going on sites and, and um uh, engaging with um an indigenous population or, or specific 
cases and then they kind of come back um, to uh, um, uh, to us and they you know work with them to develop it conceptually for a long time in European history nature has been the opposite of culture it's been the backdrop of um, human um, development of human forms of conflict it has always been in the backdrop and separate from it but today as we've all come to realize at the age of a global pandemic at the age of uh, climate change we know that this is not the case we know that nature is very much entangled with our um, with our history we know and and we've come to realize it and so we need to actually develop new ways of engaging with it of addressing and 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 new ways of understanding what environmental violence is and so there are many ways to engage with environmental violence and i think um what we're trying to do is try to do it through the lens of conflict because it's the lens that we in forensic architecture are more um equipped with it's a lens that it's very sharp in our um within our methodologies we've we've studied conflict for a long time an example that comes to my mind very um, um directly is a case that we worked on um, about the use of herbicide, the Israeli use of herbicide along the eastern border of the Gaza Strip. Since 2014, uh, Israel began uh, a practice of herbicidal spraying as part of their kind of like uh, artillery of techniques for clearing the eastern border of Gaza from any kind of agriculture. So they've been bulldozing, there's kind of like a range of techniques that they've been using, but from 2014, they started spraying herbicide. And we were hearing, we had reports from the Gazan farmers that the crops are um, are burning that um, from, um, from herbicide. And they were sent, they were taking pictures, they were sending it through, and so, we kind of like we thought okay if if there is a, a, a footage from um the israeli crop dusters spraying herbicide we could use that footage to locate the planes because if it is the palestinian crops that are being destroyed then probably these planes are crossing the border and are doing their spraying kind of like on the on the palestinian on the on the gazan side of the for, of the border we asked for footages and we collected kind of like a series of footages from crop dusters and we started um, analyzing them. We used a technique that we call image uh, mapping and motion tracking in order to map the exact path of the crop duster as it was spraying herbicide. What we found was that the... Um, the crop dusters are actually flying very, very close to the border, but they are flying on the Israeli side of the, on the Israeli side of it, very, very close, but on the Israeli side. 
And so it became a question for us that, okay, so what, what is happening? And we listen to these, we watch these videos again and again, and we listen to them again and again. And suddenly we realize that we're hearing the wind. And we asked, is it possible that there is an agency to the wind in this? For quite a few years, we've been working with uh, colleagues from the Imperial College um, who uh, are experts in fluid dynamic um, simulations. We asked them to recreate the meteorological conditions of this day. We asked them to recreate the wind direction, the temperature, the wind speed, um, and all of those um, and kinds of characteristics of the day in which um, that particular spring had happened. And we gave them our um, 3D model of the pass of the plane during this kind of like these few minutes of the video that we had. And we asked them to simulate the way the particles of herbicide would have moved in air um, given these meteorological conditions. Our simulation showed that, um, that in fact, the wind was going from the Israeli side of the border to the Gazan side and it was carrying with it the herbicide particles hundreds of meters deep into the Gazan territory destroying Palestinian farms and we looked more into it and we actually realized kind of like we did an FOI and we understood that in fact it is advised for the company who was in charge of the herbicidal spraying to do its spraying early in the morning when the breeze is going from the land side to the seaside from the Israeli side of the border to the Gazan side of the border so it was very much part of their protocol of um uh, of spraying that they would do it at a time when the wind would kind of like would be would be carrying um the particles and so this is how um one of the examples of what we consider as contemporary nature. In our study, we um, there is this kind of like multiple kinds of evidence that we're producing apart from the simulation that I just discussed. For example, we have these images, very kind of like very um, photographs, profile of a spinach leaf, of a sabanach um, leaf, of a basila leaf a very kind of like very profile pictures close up of each of these leaves. And you can see the way herbicide is eating into the surface of these leaves. At the same time, we're doing satellite analysis. So photographs taken, if you like, as a profile from uh, the Gaza Strip looking at and and these are and we use a technique called ndvi normalized in which we look at the changes in the normalized vegetation index um, that is the changes in leafiness of the ground and the way that it is registered 
um, in the lens of the satellites. From 2014 to 2018, and this is kind of like the period in which since the period um, that um, the Israeli crop dusters had began uh, their herbicidal spraying, and we could see the, the kind of like the process with which the border was cleared, and we could see the process with which slowly the Gazan side of the border was being cleared over and over. I mean, you kill a land once, you kill it again, you kill it again, and the more you repeat this process, the land loses um, eventually its capacity to to have any other crops. And, and I'm saying this, of course, I'm sure um, you... Uh, you know the kind of like the context of the economy of food in 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 the Gaza Strip. I mean, it's a prison. The Gaza Gaza is a prison. It's completely enclosed. Its borders are completely enclosed. Any food that enters has to go through the Israeli regulations. And so, to be able to grow your own crop is actually is such a kind of like it's such an important and precious and valuable asset. And, and for that to be destroyed is every kind of like there is there's an extra level of violence um, associated to it. negative comments came through a research project that we started about um, a year and a half ago on the idea of toxic clouds and it's a project that we call cloud studies with the idea that toxic clouds are colonizing the air that we breathe across different scales and different durations from kind of like from the scale of an urban square to a continent and from an incident to epical latencies. For example, we have the uh, cases where in Hong Kong and in Chile, um, a single uh, street, a single roundabout is being gassed by tear gas, by the kind of like by the state police and military is being gassed hundreds and hundreds of time over very short periods, over kind of like a few hours. And it's being gassed not only once, but again and again. And kind of like as the protests continue, this was the condition that we saw in 2019 to begin with, which was the year of these long protests. So not kind of like incidents that would break out, but actually, for example, in Chile, the protests in Plaza de la Dignidad went for months and months and months. Same was in Hong Kong, um, same was in Lebanon. And, um, and, and so with these ongoing protests and ongoing occupation of the public space by the people, reclaiming of the public space by the people, what the state did was to use tear gas to push people out, to, to use tear gas as a kind of a um, centripetal force, push people out. 
so that's what I mean by the scale of a um, of a roundabout, for example. But we have toxic clouds that that operate at a continental scale. The two thousand and fifteen forest fires in Indonesia, which we discussed before. Um, are one of these examples where you have a, 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 the kind of like the fumes from sources of fire across plantations, across kind of like Indonesia, these flumes join together and they form a kind of a toxic cloud of carbon that is covering um, not only Indonesia, but all of its neighboring countries. And that's the case that we saw also with forest fires in in California um, last year and in Australia. With this question of the negative common, what we're asking is the possibility to actually think of these um, toxic clouds as a form of a cross-border condition of suffocation, but also as a form of a toxic and negative, but common. In a sense that it is a common condition that um, all of us are sharing. And in order to bring these toxic clouds down, in order to bring accountability and liability for those who are inducing these toxic clouds, we need to lock arms. We need to rise in a, in a kind of like, we need to understand that it's a shared struggle. Yes, of course, it manifests differently in different scales, um, in different spatial and, and time scales. But we are all part of this, this kind of like, but this is a common condition. It's a common cross-border condition that we're all sharing. And so what are the ways, what are the techniques, what are the kind of like, what are the forensic techniques, but also what are the techniques for resistance with, with a kind of like a larger question. And with that, also, we're engaging with a concept that um, our long-term collaborator, Ashil member, um, put forward, the idea of uh, the universal right to breathe. That breathing is not a purely biological practice, but it is something that we all hold in common, and we hold it in common universally. And so how is it that we can protect this right, the right to breathe? And so with this concept, there are ways that we're trying to engage with it, especially with... Um, with the use of tear gas, we've kind of like there are quite a few investigations now that we have been developing on quite a few investigative methods that we have been developing around um, tear gas and in different contexts. For example, um, with our investigation on Safari Land and Triple Chaser, we were looking at bringing liability around the use of this kind of tear gas, specific type of tear gas, through looking at where it is being sold and in which conflicts it's being used. It was kind of like from that kind of an angle that we were looking at. So where is it that the sale of this product is kind of like is going to what countries 
um, it's uh, this type of tear gas is being sold, but also in what images of conflict, what images um, um, on social media can we detect um, images of this particular type of product. So that was one technique. This was only a beginning for us. So we started looking at, uh, we started collaborating by with people, with kind of like activists in Hong Kong and um, with fence-line communities in um, Chile in order to actually engage with tear gas from an environmental point of view and to see what are the ways that we can map uh, map these clouds of tear gas so you know there is um uh, there is there is it's hard the mapping of clouds is a hard it's a hard one because they change and morph um quite quickly sometimes they're not even visible to the eye so the camera cannot capture them but sometimes it's only at the beginning um, the kind of like the short few first seconds that you can see them and then um, their smell stays and they kind of like they, they're still present but you cannot see them with the lens of a kind of a smartphone and so what we thought and you know of course the conflict in in Hong Kong and in, in say Santiago um, there were hundreds of images and videos um, posted online from them activists were photographing and filming and were posting these documentations online to, to analyze them using open source techniques um, using these images we could identify where exactly the source of these clouds are so that's one part identifying the source and then of course there is all of the the kind of like the medical reports from the effects of tear gas on protesters um effects of chemical infection in as the chilean human rights organization was reporting late last year but also long-term effects to force and these are the after effects if you like but it's hard to understand what happens in between these two. The moment when tear gas is released from the canister and that time when you have the medical reports. What happened? What, how do these clouds operate? And so we have been able to develop, to bridge this gap um, using our techniques and collaborating with our colleagues in the Imperial College to map the contours of the clouds of tear gas, the way that they move with wind as it moves through an urban fabric, because of course the wind operates differently in the tall urban fabric of Hong Kong as it does with the kind of like with an urban square, um, uh, with a roundabout um, in, in Santiago, it, it operates very, very differently. And so it carries and the particles of tear gas with it in a very different way. So, um, uh, so, so the kind of like the way that these, this cloud moves, but also with what kinds of concentration and, and when it deposits on the ground, what kinds of concentrations and how far. And so this is a new technique that we've been developing and it kind of like it puts forward a kind of a benchmark, benchmark methodology for bringing accountability around um, the use of tear gas.
with every investigation, we try to push this technique one step further, one step further. And we see the kind of like the aim of this uh, body of investigations around tear gas is to actually be able to bring a moratorium for the use of tear gas universally across the globe. Um, so that it as as a kind of a police tactic, so that it's not used as a police tactic against civilians anywhere across the globe. One of our mandates in forensic architecture is to develop new investigative techniques. We are a multidisciplinary team. I think about maybe maybe less than one third of us come from the field of architecture, but we have people who work in software development, in journalism, in law, in filmmaking, um, in um, sound analysis. And so because of the kind of the multidisciplinary structure of our team, the kinds of techniques that we develop are also in this crossing of disciplines. That's where they are and that's where the innovation happens. With the... Um, with the projects of Model Zoo, um, it's it's not a project that I was I was personally working on, but one of the key um, innovations around it was to bridge and to connect some of the techniques from the discipline of architecture with some of the techniques um, uh, from this from the discipline of software development. Uh, the models was developed after our investigation on Safari Land and Triple Chaser. There, we had we kind of had this idea of using object recognition in order to identify to train the idea of training uh, machine learning classifiers so that they can analyze images and videos that are on social media in order to detect certain objects, for example, a kind of a canister that belongs to this company. But then we face the problem because in order to train a machine learning classifier, you need to have um, you need to have a lot of images, a lot of photographs of the object in order to be able to train the classifier, right? And images of Triple Chaser were quite rare at the time. There wasn't enough images of them already online in order to be able to train a classifier. And we thought in this context, okay, this is actually something that we can use our architectural techniques for because we can develop renderings. We can develop um, realistic renderings um, of canisters in kind of like an environments in which they would have been used and we could use these renderings in order to train the classifier so we could kind of like we developed hundreds of variations of what the canister would be on its texture how deformed it would be um, depending on how many times it's been kicked at um, so on and so forth and we positioned them in environments in which it would be used we do, you, and, and we did those renderings and we used them to train the classifier and this was kind of like the base technique that we also used for model zoo in in the context of hong kong
there is a lot of knowledge and um, uh, literature that has been developed since the 70s by the feminist um, environmentalist thinkers. Uh, her way, um, especially, I mean, she worked on orangutans. Um, and I think that was the first, the first time that we looked at this project, we were like, okay, we have to look at her way, we have to see how she um, approached it. And so, um, of course, it's, um, you know, there, there are many thinkers right now who are, who are working with this, especially from the feminist um, um, and queer uh, uh, angle. Um, Pavinelli um, works very much in this life and death um, border. Um, Haraway talks about this kind of uh, uh, making kinship with um, animals, with uh, insects, with like the trees, with just making kinship um, idea. But also we um, get our hands dirty, right? We're, we're working with concrete cases that have concrete um, uh, information, they have dates, they're like, um, they're, and, and, and it grounds us, these, these are the, we work with them, we work with the material, it's not simply um, a conceptual kind of approach that we're having, it's very real, um, the evidences that we produce are very, uh, we, you know, triple and you know, like we check them many, many, many times to make sure that they're correct. We ground truth every claim that we have, um, and we have a vision. We we want to take these things to court, and we want to act with them. Um, forensic architecture is very much about acting, like the activism um, side of the discourse. All of our investigations are for bringing accountability. That's precisely what the aim of our work is and in order to do that we mobilize our investigations across different kinds of forums so the forum of the court is only one of these um, for example at the moment we have a case against um, Corindo a Korean company a palm oil agglomerate um, who's been who has kind of like quite a lot of plantations in um, in West Papua and has been using fire intentionally to clear these um, plantations. We have a case and our evidence has been submitted to a court um, to bring liability for Corindo. Um, that's one case. But, you know, um, there is other kinds of forums that can work if we're dealing with environmental violence. Um, we need to actually use different sensibilities. We need to develop um, and, and bring awareness across different scales and across different kinds of levels of sensibility. So, for example, uh, a case that we just released actually on environmental racism in Louisiana together with my colleague Imani Jacqueline Brown, we were looking at the Mississippi River um, a strip of land between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that was once known as the plantation country and has now become the petrochemical corridor, an area that is majority black, that majority black communities live in this, um, in this region. Now its air has become extremely toxic because of the number of uh, uh, petrochemical facilities that 
have taken over the land that was once a sugarcane plantation and they've kind of like they've taken this land and are now producing um, toxic air and and so the way that we are mobilizing that investigation is of course is the aim is to bring accountability but uh, in this first iteration of the project what we did was to um, to use media outlets as the first forum to circulate the work. Um, we asked New York Times to relay at work, part of our work on this investigation. And then we're showing it um, in cultural forums. And so, you know, like it's, it's operating in that kind of a scale. Of course, to have the full, uh, to develop the kind of full research, you would need many expertise and many collaborations and so on. But um, to have an entry, to know that as a citizen, I can enter this discourse. I can, there, there are things that I can do. Um, for example, um, the uh, some of the satellite images we use are available publicly by NASA. Um, and and you know, people can access them. It's um, you have to learn in order to be able to process them or analyze them. But there is a way, and so to show these entry points that um, you know, like, um, but also say in the case of Negev, um, uh, who Ariel Kane is um, work on it quite a lot, um. It's about educating um, the Bedouin population that they can start mapping their own environment themselves um, through a very simple technique that we, 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 come up, we came up with in the sense that you have a camera, you um, don't even need any drone, you just need to attach it to a kite and um, you have to fly over the space and it's something that kids do in the Negev you know, or anywhere in the world really just flying your kite but then it becomes through a technique that we produce that okay so then this camera will take a series of photos at um, particular intervals very very quickly and then what we could do to work with them because this is not something that say we can you know it's something that they can do they can pass us the photos they've taken and we can turn it into a point cloud reconstruction of um, their environment which is very accurate which is in three dimension which is um, measurable concrete has a date and has a very high resolution as well um, so it's about working with um, with them that you know we rely on um, citizen participation um, and we can add much more to what they've done you know it's um, it's that kind of a thing but also um, I was saying um, I um, I used to teach in um, uh, in uh, the Bartlett in University College of London and the beginning of when we got the students, I was teaching in master of or, masters of urbanism, and when um, we were uh, with the new students, we started teaching them some of the techniques, some of the basic techniques that they can uh, work with to do 
this kind of analysis and um and it was quite you know like it was a few workshops and you will learn very specific set of um, analysis but then it's an entry point into larger things you can learn um, other things after that it becomes easy to kind of navigate yourself um, into these things What I do in my PhD is to look at um, architecture as something that organizes people. And I look at the architecture of the home as something that organizes very particular sets of relationships between people, between individuals. And I look at it from um, a kind of with, with the lens of gender and class. So how does it affect and I look at and I look at um, large scale projects of mass housing. So projects that are initiated by the state um, and they have a very specific blueprint and architecture. And then there's the idea that a people will be moved into these houses. And I look at what was their ways of life before this? What was their aspirations for moving into this new place? Um, and so how, what was the relationship that this house was creating between a people and a state body? And then when they moved in, what was the kind of practices that they started doing? How did their um, routines, their everyday life came to be changed? What remained constant? Did they change the house? Did they remove a wall? Did they, um, you know, and, and so the changes in the architecture, it becomes for me like um, a sensor. The architecture of the house becomes a sensor for me that then I can uh, see conflicts um, between ideologies of the state about what living is and what I want my citizens to be, you know, living in and what the idea that someone you know, I as an individual think my life is and want to live it. Um, uh, and I look at it more historically as well as um, in a, 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 as well as in a contemporary condition. And I look at Iran um, in my research. But um, so so there is a lot of differences with what I'm doing in forensic architecture, but there's also a lot of overlaps. One of the um, cases that I'm looking at, the contemporary case that I'm looking at is the project of Meh, which was um, launched by Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the ex-president of Iran. It was the largest project of housing that the Islamic Republic has had to date. It was very um, ambitious. In the beginning, it was aiming for 4 million housing units which is a lot um 
and but but then it, only half of the houses were built by the time that uh, Ahmadinejad's um, time was over. Um, but so you had these houses, and they were built in the form of settlements, um, usually far away from the cities in the barren landscape, away from the urban centers, and. Um, the way that they were built was that also they were only housing so um there was kind of no schools there or there was at that stage of the project the idea was that the the way staging worked was that you would build all the houses first people were moving and then we kind of add all the other things that a settlement needs um but then uh the project was stopped um at when the governmental um when the new president Rouhani came into power and so the agendas were a bit different um uh you know it was not so it was not about providing housing for the, the ideas were not not about providing housing for the working class um and so those houses were kind of left alone they were frozen at whatever stage uh, they were in. Um, and I started doing um, field work, going to people's houses, talking to them, see where they're from, where did they live before, and so on. And there is this story of um, Mahsan, one of the women um, that I met. She, she took me to her house and she was saying that the kitchen is really small. Um, and it's partially separated from the living room. But then I started talking to my husband saying that the kitchen is too small. I can't do anything in this kitchen. And I think we should remove the wall that is separating the kitchen from the living room. And all of my, you know, all of our neighbors who have the same floor plan have done the same thing. So I think we should do this. And to me, um, hearing her saying this, um, uh, a very witty woman um, who was kind of uh, trying to rethink really what a family is what the, and what are the routines of a family. You know, uh, the separation between a kitchen and a living room is a separation between um, the task of serving and being served for, um, cooking and being cooked for. And so the moment you remove the wall, you are... Um, uh, dissolving the, the distinctions between these roles and that's 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 amazing that's that's such a powerful story and then what she does afterwards is to say that okay um uh and that's that's i mean that's that's what i could see that she has done that um Usually when you do this removing of the wall, um, what might happen is that the entire space might become a kitchen. You start like, you know, cooking everywhere and so on. But what she did was that she used her dowry, um, the most aesthetic elements of her dowry, the china plates, the candles, the mirror, the vases, and she arranged them all around the space this new joint space of the kitchen and the living room. So in a way, the entire space had become a living room. So the kitchen has like slowly um, become reduced to the bare elements that it can have. Um, so for me, it just reminded me of all the socialist practices that the, that was happening, experiments that were happening in Soviet Union at the time, at like in the, uh, in the uh, say, 50s. Um, 
the removing of the kitchen, the creation of communal kitchens, um, and that was a, a, a kind of like a feminist discourse about what is reproductive work. And but it was something in Soviet Union. It was something that is was imposed by the state, very clearly. And here I could see individuals practicing it on their kind of in in very in a very subtle way having this kind of like creating these little pockets of freedom um for themselves these little pockets of emancipation um and it became important for me to kind of look into that document it um uh, and, and build on it that okay like what can we do if this is the context if you can see what are the problems in this in these kind of practices how can we move forward how can we have something more radical as an architect how can i um uh, put myself like what can i do in this context <laughs>